Welcome to Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and second breakfast. I'm your host, Casey Meserve, and today I have a really fun episode for you. Folks, before we get started today, I wanted to share a huge announcement with you about the fourth annual Virtual JaneCon. Submissions for programming are open. Now, Virtual JaneCon is a free online convention about all things Jane Austen. And the volunteers who run Virtual JaneCon work really hard to create and maintain a radically inclusive space for all Austin and Regency fans. Previous Virtual JaneCon programs ranged from Regency costuming and gaming to deep discussions on Austin's work and Regency history. It's a really fun, wide-ranging event that captures the wide variety of interests and talents within the Jane Austen community on a free, online, and accessible platform. But the best thing about it is that you do not need to have a PhD to be a presenter. All you need is an interest in the topic you want to present. Austen fans of all backgrounds and interests are welcome to submit a program If you have an Austin-related obsession that you'd like to share with the community, we want to hear from you. Submissions are open until April 15th, 2023, and Virtual JaneCon will be held July 15th and 16th on YouTube. You can submit a programming proposal on virtualjanecon.com slash submissions2023. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. First off, let's meet another member of the Austin family. Well, Jane's oldest brother James followed his father's footsteps to become a rector at Steventon, and Edward was adopted by relatives to become a member of the landed gentry, and Frank and Charles went into the Royal Navy, eventually rising to the rank of Admiral. Henry had another path, and in my opinion, a much more interesting one. He was a militia officer, a banker, a clergyman, and Jane's publicist and literary agent. Henry was the funny, sunny, handsome, garrulous, and charming member of a funny, garrulous, and charming family. Henry Thomas Austin was born June 8, 1771 at Steventon Rectory, the fourth son after James, George, and Edward, to George and Cassandra Austin. He was taught at home by his father and went to Oxford at 17 in 1788, following James where he studied to become a clergyman like his father. While at St. John's College on a Founders Kin Scholarship, thanks to his mother's family connections, he helped James publish and write his weekly magazine, The Loiterer. In 1782, Henry received his bachelor's degree and intended to continue for a master's, and the college gave him a scholarship and a stipend, and he was working as an assistant logic reader teaching undergrads until 1793, when war broke out, again, between England and France. Henry changed his mind about the church and school and accepted a commission as lieutenant with the Oxfordshire Militia and went to Southampton to help protect the English Channel from French invasion. Henry was a good fit for the militia, and the next year he became acting paymaster for the regiment, ensuring soldiers and officers were paid correctly. 
Henry served for seven years while taking occasional time off to complete his degree, and after Southampton, the regiment were stationed at Brighton, Ipswich, Dublin, and Portsmouth. As acting and then official paymaster for his regiment, Henry used his charm to make some important friends, including powerful men like Colonel William Gore Langston, a member of Parliament who sat in the House of Commons for 45 years, starting in 1795. In 1801, Gore Langston helped Henry begin a career as a financial agent, working as a middleman between the government agency tasked with military payroll and the regiment's paymaster. He also bought and sold officers' commissions and acted as a banker for some officers, all while collecting the pay of each company's fictitious warrant man. He eventually struck up a partnership with Henry Mond and formed Austin & Co., a bank which operated for 15 years. While his career was taking off, Henry was also successful in his personal life, and in 1797 he married his cousin, Eliza de Fulide, who had been widowed in 1794 when her husband, the Comte de la Fulide, was guillotined for his royalist loyalties during the Reign of Terror in Paris. Henry and Eliza had flirted as teenagers in Steventon, but she and her mother, Philadelphia, George's sister, traveled around Europe and eventually settled in France. Henry and Eliza are also thought to be the subjects or the models for some of Jane's early works, including Henry and Eliza. Henry and Eliza had no children, but he did care for her son Hastings, who had what is believed to be a seizure condition, which may have been similar to the condition suffered by Henry's brother George. Sadly, little Hastings died in 1801. In 1802, the Treaty of Amiens made Henry's work in military finance less profitable, and he and Eliza moved to France, where he exported French wine to friends and acquaintances in England until 1803, when Austin & Co. moved offices to Parliament Street in London, near government offices where he continued making new powerful friends. Henry's connections to the government led to Austin & Co.'s great success, and Henry became a partner in three additional banks. In 1806, Frank Austin, who was now a commander in the Royal Navy, became a partner, and the bank's name changed to Austin, Mond, and Austin. They were later joined by a fourth partner, James Tilson, the brother of one of Henry's military friends, and changed the name of the firm again to Austin, Mond, and Tilson. Henry used his financial boon to help his sisters and mother, who were left bereft after his father George died in 1805. James and Henry had to decide how the four brothers would provide for their mother and sisters, and Edward and Frank contributed £150 a year, leaving James and Henry to each pledge 50 per annum. It was financially stressful, but Henry did promise to do as much as he could as long as his precarious income remains. Henry's success continued, and he turned his attention to Jane's writing, which he had always been a huge supporter of. Years before, their father had successfully sold Jane's novel Eleanor and Marianne to a publisher, but the book had never been printed. Now Henry worked to get Jane published. He took Sense and Sensibility to an acquaintance, Thomas Edgerton, a publisher of military books, and once the distributor of 
the loiterer. Lucy Worsley conjectures that Edgerton only published the novel because he knew that he, if it bond, Henry, the banker, would be able to pay him back for the loss. When the novel finally came out in October 1811, it was a success and sold out its first printing. With that, Henry became Jane's de facto literary agent, working with Edgerton, changed publishers later after she was unhappy with the terms Edgerton set. He, Henry bargained, read proofs and made copy edits, hustled the printers and bookbinders, and worked really hard to make Jane's characters the household names we know them today. Henry's penchants for gossip even got Jane invited to the Prince Regent's house. In 1815, Jane was staying with Henry in Hans Place, London, to deal with her new publisher, John Murray, who was publishing her next two novels, Mansfield Park and Emma. Eliza had sadly died, likely of breast cancer, in 1813, and Henry, now a widower, often had Jane visiting, acting as the lady of the house, and to work with him on her publishing efforts. That fall of 1815, Henry's illness took a serious turn and Jane became his agent, writing business letters and family notes for him and calling a doctor to his bedside. Now this doctor was Matthew Bailey, who just happened to be the physician for the Prince Regent, and Henry couldn't help himself but to tell the doctor about his sister. Dr. Bailey told him that the Prince Regent was a huge fan of her novels and kept a set of them in every one of his residences. Well, Dr. Bailey told the Prince Regent that the author of Pride and Prejudice was staying in London, and the Prince asked his personal librarian, Reverend James Stanier Clark, to pay her a call and invite her to tour the Prince's London home, a, a modest little palace called Carlton House. While there, Stanier Clark suggested that Jane dedicate her next novel to the Prince Regent. And while Jane really hated the Prince Regent personally, because he was a philanderer, she couldn't say no. And so she dedicated Emma to the Prince Regent. Henry managed to recover, but suffered a major professional loss when Austin, Mond, and Tilson failed in March 1816. It wasn't a major surprise because banks across the country were failing in the post-war depression, but it left him bankrupt and he could no longer afford to give his mother 50 pounds a year to support her and his sisters. The bankruptcy also meant that other family members lost thousands of pounds they had invested with the bank. His brother Edward lost 20,000 pounds and his uncle James Lay Perrault lost 10,000 pounds. But like all the Austins, setbacks did not keep Henry down for long. Henry finally decided to enter the church and became an ordained deacon in December 1816. He became the curate at Chawton, where Jane, Cassandra, and their mother lived, and where Edward just happened to have an estate. He continued to act as Jane's literary agent until she died in July 1817, and helped publish her final two books, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. He also wrote the biographical notice at the beginning of the two novels set, identifying his sister as the author of all six of her published novels. When James died in 1819, Henry took over as rector at Steventon and married Eleanor Jackson. 
The couple later moved to Farnham in Surrey, and during this time he also worked as a master at the Farnham Grammar School. He eventually became the curate of Bentley in Hampshire. In 1824, when the French Revolution settled a bit, Henry tried and failed to get back some of the French lands and fortunes that Eliza had left when she and Hastings had fled two decades before. But the French courts decided that the Comte's siblings had a better claim than a remarried British English widower. Henry lived a pretty quiet life in his retirement. He had no children with Eleanor, and despite his resourcefulness and many occupations and preoccupations, Henry never rebounded financially from his losses in 1816. He had debts of 800 pounds and 400 pounds mentioned in his letters to his nephew, James Edward, in 1828 and 1832. In the latter years, he and Cassandra sold the copyright to five of Jane's novels to Richard Bentley. This firm already owned the rights to the sixth for 250 pounds and two copies of the work. These Bentley editions were published in 1832 and 33, and Jane's works were made available to new eager readers for the first time since their original publication. Henry retired in 1839 thanks to finally a legacy from his aunt, Mrs. Leigh Perrault, and he and Eleanor then spent some time in France. Now, just last year, in 2022, News broke that Henry had served as a delegate to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. Researchers discovered that he was one of the two delegates from Colchester and sat among nearly 500 delegates who came from around the globe to create a political platform for anti-slavery measures and support formerly enslaved black people who had been recently freed in the British colonies. Henry died of gastritis in 1850. He was 79 years old at Tunbridge Well. He is buried in Woodbury Park Cemetery, Tunbridge Well, and Eleanor outlived him by 14 years, dying in 1864. And Henry's niece, Anna Lefroy, summed up Henry really well. She said, he was the handsomest of his family, and in the opinion of his own father, also the most talented. There were others who formed a different estimate and considered his abilities greater in show than in reality. But for the most part, he was greatly admired. Brilliant in conversation he was, and like his father, blessed with a hopefulness of temper, which, in adapting itself to all circumstances, even the most adverse, seemed to create a perpetual sunshine. The race, however, is not all to the swift. It never has been. And though so highly gifted by nature, my uncle was not prosperous in life. Well, we covered a lot of ground in our last episode. So I'll provide a brief recap here. But if you haven't listened to it yet, you should put this one on pause. Go back to listen to episode 13, You've Got Mail, Colonel Brandon and then come back and listen to this one. So, last episode, the entire neighborhood was planning to go tour a park owned by Colonel Brandon's brother-in-law. 
but Brandon got mail during breakfast and immediately took off to London. Everybody but Eleanor begged him to stay, especially Mrs. Jennings, who hinted it had something or other to do with his natural daughter. So he left, and the entire crew decides to take off onto the downs for some fun, except Marianne and Willoughby, who took his carriage and disappeared all day and refused to tell anyone where they'd been until Mrs. Jennings got the servant gossip. They head toward Allenham, the park and home owned by Willoughby's aunt, Mrs. Smith. Well, this was imprudent even for Marianne, and Eleanor gave her a thorough scolding. But Marianne says if it feels good, it must be good, and then tells Eleanor about every room in the house. We begin Chapter 14 with Mrs. Jennings, who still can't get over Brandon's mysterious disappearance. The sudden termination of Colonel Brandon's visit to the park, with his steadiness in concealing its cause, filled the mind and raised the wonder of Mrs. Jennings for two or three days. She was a great wonderer, and everyone must be who takes a very lively interest in all the comings and goings of their acquaintances. She wondered, with little intermission, what could be the reason of it. Was sure there must be some bad news, and thought over every kind of distress that could have befallen him, with a fixed determination that he should not escape them all. Something very melancholy must be the matter, I am sure, said she. I could see it in his face, poor man. I am afraid his circumstances may be bad. The estate at Delaford was never reckoned much more than two thousand a year, and his brother left everything sadly involved. I do think he must have been sent for about money matters. For what else can it be? I wonder whether it is so. I would give anything to know the truth of it. Perhaps it is about Miss Williams, and, by the by, I dare say it is, because he looked so conscious when I mentioned her. Maybe she is ill in town, nothing in the world more likely, for I have a notion she is always rather sickly. I would lay any wager it is about Miss Williams. It is not so very likely he should be distressed in his circumstances now, for he is a very prudent man, and to be sure must have cleared the estate by this time. I wonder what it can be. Maybe his sister is worse at Avignon and has sent it for him over. His setting off in such a hurry seems very like it. Well, I wish him out of all his troubles with all my heart and a good wife into the bargain. This is a lot of information and I'm wondering if this is all in just a single conversation or is this an example of the things that Mrs. J said over those two or three days. This is definitely something we humans do. We mull and think about something that happened or upset us. We, our brains just spin and spin. We talk about it constantly and bring it up during some totally unrelated conversation. And Austin has shown a synopsis of these conversations in a succinct way that demonstrates Mrs. Jennings' meddlesome nature. Austin does this type of narration, not a lot, but occasionally, when a character is likely saying things on a topic over a period of time. For instance, I believe Fanny Dashwood's narrative with her husband in Chapter 2 is a similar type, and in the 1995 movie version of Sense and Sensibility, Fanny spends days talking to her husband about the inconvenience of helping the Dashwood family after their father dies. 
Remember, Miss, Mr. Dashwood made his son John promise to support Mrs. D and her three daughters. But Fanny meddled, and that's why the Dashwoods ended up in Devonshire. Fanny spent days convincing John not to give his sisters or stepmother a penny. And here, Mrs. Jennings spends days obsessing over Brandon's reasons for leaving so suddenly. So what are the things she's mulling over anyways? Well, it could be Brandon's estate, which we learn is worth about £2,000 a year. That's a nice income. It's not grand. It's not Darcy. We learn that Brandon's brother owned it before he did, so Brandon isn't the oldest male in his family, and that his brother also mortgaged the property. That's what Mrs. J means by involved. So this brother, who apparently died young, had money troubles. But Mrs. J believes enough time has gone by that Colonel Brandon has been able to pay off the mortgage. Then she wonders if her initial guess is correct, and it's this Miss Williams, Brandon's natural daughter, meaning she was born out of wedlock. And Mrs. J says she really believes this could be the reason because of Brandon's reaction, even though this is the second thing she's thinking about. He blushed, remember, when she brought it up in front of like 20 people over breakfast. And she wonders if this Miss Williams is ill in London, where she's supposed to be, probably at a girl's school or with a governess. We're not told much. Finally, she thinks it could be Brandon's sister in southern France, who had moved there for warm weather. Then she thinks maybe a future wife has something to do with it, or maybe that's just the way her matchmaker brain works. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, as Dr. Seuss would say, Eleanor has far bigger, closer, and more immediate things to worry about. Eleanor, though she really felt interested in the welfare of Colonel Brandon, could not bestow all the wonder of his going so suddenly away which Mrs. Jennings was desirous of her feeling, for besides that the circumstances did not, in her opinion, justify such lasting amazement or a variety of speculation. Her wonder was otherwise disposed of. It was engrossed by the extraordinary silence of her sister and Willoughby on the subject, which they must know to be peculiarly interesting to all of them. As this silence continued, every day made it appear more strange and more incompatible with the disposition of both. Why they should not openly acknowledge to her mother and herself what their constant behavior to each other declared to have taken place, Eleanor could not imagine. She could easily conceive that marriage might not be immediately in their power, for though Willoughby was independent, there was no reason to believe him rich. His estate had been rated by Sir John at about six or seven hundred a year, but he lived in an expense to which that income could hardly be equal, and he had himself often complained of his poverty. But for this strange kind of secrecy maintained by them relative to their engagement, which in fact concealed nothing at all, she could not account, and it was so wholly contradictory to their general opinions and practice that a doubt sometimes entered her mind of their being really engaged, and this doubt was enough to prevent her making any inquiry of Marianne. So while Mrs. Jennings obsesses over Brandon, all Eleanor, and probably her mother, can think about is why Marianne and Willoughby haven't announced their engagement. 
Eleanor believes they must be engaged or they wouldn't act the way they do. And over the last two episodes, we've discussed these actions. Willoughby gave Marianne a horse. Marianne gave him a lock of hair. He called her by her first name rather than Miss Dashwood. And finally, they took off in his carriage for his family estate while everyone else was out on the downs. Now we find that Marianne also refuses to dance with anyone but Willoughby at Sir John's innumerable balls and parties. They're also incredibly obvious and oblivious to everyone in their social group. And every action shows they'd rather be together than spend time with anyone else. Now we in the 21st century might think that a month or six weeks or however long it's been since they met isn't long enough for this pair to get married. They haven't known each other long enough. But couples in Georgian England didn't need to know each other long. According to the Clandestine Marriage Act of 1753, engaged couples only had to wait three weeks before getting married. During that time, their impending nuptials would be announced each Sunday in the parish churches of both parties for three weeks. Other than that, they didn't need to know each other that well. Remember, Mr. Collins and Charlotte Lucas only knew each other for like two weeks before he proposes three days after being rejected by Elizabeth. So lengthy courtships weren't necessary. It was more important that the two parties were of similar backgrounds and class. And as far as we know, Marianne and Willoughby are a good match for background and class. But why would Marianne and Willoughby remain silent? Eleanor thinks maybe it's because Willoughby can't afford to marry immediately. His current estate is only worth about six, seven hundred a year. That's not enough for a gambling man like Willoughby to get married on. And Eleanor knows he's living beyond his means because he's constantly talking about how poor he is. Although we never hear this from Willoughby itself, it's only reported by the narrator. But beyond this, the two of them hiding anything is totally out of character for both of them. Marianne is all about the truth and feeling, and that's what sensibility and sentimentality is about. She as an honest and open person, would definitely tell her family if she were engaged. But mom is her word. But she's acting like she's engaged. So this is driving Eleanor nuts. And she won't just ask Marianne because she believes Marianne would tell her if she was engaged. Because that's what sensible Eleanor thinks she herself would do. Eleanor has all these doubts running around inside her head because she knows what she's seen, but she also knows what she hasn't heard. This makes my head spin, so let's take a step back for a minute and look at one more interesting point in this section. We have a brief description, blank and you miss it, of Brandon's brother, and then we have one of Willoughby. There are a lot of similarities in these two characters, one of whom is dead. And we definitely get into the personalities of both of them as the story progresses. But we're starting to piece together more about them. And that's what's so great about Austin. She leaves these hints and trails everywhere about characters, even those we never actually meet. So Brandon's brother left his estate deeply in debt, according to Mrs. Jennings. And Sir John says Willoughby isn't isn't rich by any means. And we 
also have seen hints that he gambles heavily, which we guessed in the last episode, and that he spends far more than he earns on horses and clothes and all the accoutrements of being a gentleman and a sportsman. All right, so let's get back to the text where Willoughby is visiting the Dashwoods. One evening in particular, about a week after Colonel Brandon left the country, his heart seemed more than usually open to every feeling of attachment to the objects around him and on Mrs. Dashwood's happening to mention her design on improving the cottage in the spring, he warmly opposed every altercation of a place which affection had established as perfect with him. What, he exclaimed, improve this dear cottage? No, that I will never consent to. Not a stone must be added to its walls, not an inch to its size, if my feelings are regarded. Do not be alarmed, said Miss Dashwood. Nothing of the kind will be done, for my mother will never have enough money to attempt it. I am hardly glad of it, he cried. May she always be poor, if she can employ her riches no better. Thank you, Willoughby, but you may be assured that I would not sacrifice one sentiment of local attachment of yours, or of any one whom I loved, for all the improvements in the world. Depend upon it that whatever unemployed sum may remain when I make up my accounts in the spring, I would even rather lay it uselessly aside than dispose of it in a matter so painful to you. But are you really so attached to this place as to see no defect in it? I am, said he. To me it is faultless. Nay, more, I consider it the only form of building in which happiness is attainable, and were I rich enough, I would instantly pull Coombe down and build it up again in the exact plan of this cottage. With dark, narrow stairs and a kitchen that smokes, I suppose, said Eleanor. Yes, cried he in the same eager tone, with all and everything belonging to it, and no one convenience or inconvenience about it, should the least variation be perceptible. Then, and then only, under such a roof, I might perhaps be as happy at Coombe as I have been at Barton. I flatter myself, replied Eleanor, that even under the disadvantage of better rooms and a broader staircase, you will hereafter find your own house as faultless as you now do this. There certainly are circumstances, said Willoughby, which might greatly endear it to me, but this place will always have one claim on my affection, which no other can possibly share. Mrs. Dashwood looked with pleasure at Marian, whose fine eyes were fixed so expressively on Willoughby as plainly denoted how well she understood him. How often did I wish, added he, when I was at Allenham this time twelve month, that Barton Cottage were inhabited. I never pass within view of it without admiring its situation and grieving that no one should live in it. How little did I think then that the very first news I should hear from Mrs. Smith when I next came into this country would be that Barton Cottage was taken, and I felt an immediate satisfaction and interest in the event, which nothing but a kind of prescience for what happiness I should experience from it can account for. Must it not have been so, Marianne? Speaking to her in a lowered tone, then continuing his former tone, he said, "'And yet this house you would spoil, Mrs. Dashwood. "'You would rob it of its simplicity by imaginary improvement. "'And this dear parlour, in which our acquaintance first began, "'and in which so many happy hours have been spent by us together, "'you would degrade in the condition of a common entrance. 
and everybody would be eager to pass through the room which has hitherto contained within itself more real accommodation and comfort than any other apartment of the handsomest dimensions in the world could possibly offer. Mrs. Dashwood again assured him that no alteration of the kind should be attempted. "'You are a good woman,' he warmly replied. "'Your promise makes me easy. Extend it a little farther, and it will make me happy. Tell me not that not only your house will remain the same, but that I shall ever find you and yours as unchanged as your dwelling, and that you will always consider me with the kindness which has made everything belonging to you so dear to me.' The promise was readily given, and Willoughby's behavior during the whole of the evening declared at once his affection and happiness. "'Shall we see you to-morrow to dinner?' said Mrs. Dashwood, when he was leaving them. "'I do not ask you to come in the morning, for we must walk to the park to call on Lady Middleton.' He engaged to be with them by four o'clock. So Mrs. Dashwood was discussing those updates and rehabs that she had wanted to do to the cottage since they moved in. But Willoughby is absolutely against it. And Eleanor, of course, throws water on the whole idea by reminding her mother that she won't have the money to do anything. But Willoughby continues insisting that the cottage is practically perfect in every way, and that if he could afford to tear down his own house, he would rebuild it exactly like Barton Cottage. He's exaggerating, as usual. Well, Eleanor sensibly and sarcastically points out the dark stairways and a smoky kitchen, which were both common problems in these smaller, older homes. But that just makes Willoughby double down on his statement, and he insists that he is happier at Barton Cottage than at Coombe. Eleanor, of course, says she doesn't believe him, and that even though his house has wider stairs and a chimney that doesn't smoke, he'll likely be happier at Coombe than at Barton Cottage. And Willoughby answers that there are some circumstances that would make Coombe more pleasing to him, but that Barton will always have that one claim on his affection that no other place has. And this is interesting. He explains that when visiting Mrs. Smith last year, he had wished that the cottage were inhabited. And he says that when he returned this year and Mrs. Smith told him the cottage was rented, Willoughby says he felt immediate satisfaction and interest which nothing but a kind of prescience of what happiness I should experience from it can account for. Must it not have been so, Marianne? By using words like prescience, which means knowing something before it happens, or foreknowledge, Willoughby is displaying that same kind of sensibility that Marianne would. He's also explaining it by loving this cottage, this ideal of the English cottage that later became very popular in English architecture and in French architecture. His senses are telling him that he will experience happiness via the cottage before he knows anything about the renters. Now, is he saying this because he's a believer in sensibility or because he knows Marion appreciates this type of thought? I think it's a mix of both. I think Willoughby does have a vein of this romantic sensibility in his character, but he's also pretty calculating and selfish. But he, and he knows this is exactly the type of thing that Marianne likes to hear. And of course it works on Marianne. Her eyes are fixed on him 
and Mrs. Dean notes that when he's subtly saying without saying that Coombe would be perfect if Marianne were his wife and lived at Coombe with him. But this is as obvious as he can be because neither he nor Marianne have said anything about marriage yet, as far as Mrs. D and Eleanor know. And of course, Mrs. D, being the indulgent woman with a, more than a dash of sensibility herself, promises Willoughby that not a stone will be turned at Barton. Then Willoughby demands so politely and warmly that Mrs. D and her daughters remain at the cottage always. Now, this is kind of funny because the only way Coombe could be better than Barton was if Marianne were at Coombe, but Willoughby just asked that the dash would stay at Barton for the rest of their lives. Which is it, Willoughby? And do you really want Eleanor and Margaret to stay there forever, forever, becoming spinsters with their widowed mother? He's being more than a little ridiculous and pretty selfish, but he's funny and amusing at least. He's also displaying this potential negligence of other people's comfort and feelings in favor of his own comfort and ease. He wants both Marianne as his wife and for her to stay a maiden at Barton Cottage forever. But both Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne only see his interest in Marianne, not his self-interest. Anyways, Willoughby promises he will be at the cottage for dinner tomorrow, and that's the end of this chapter and where we will end for today. Thank you for listening to Ends and Sensibility. This episode was written and edited by me, Casey Meserve. You can listen to all our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you like the show, please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review. Those reviews really help other people find the podcast. Thank you, and I hope you'll visit again with me soon.